Hi everyone, my name is Zach and I'm a first year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine. Hi, my name is Amar, I'm a senior econ student at Case. Uh, and welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions in the field. And uh, today we have the pleasure of speaking with a fifth year orthopedic surgery resident at NYU Langone, Dr. Rivka Ihejarika Lemedico. After this year, she'll be starting her fellowship in spine surgery at Harvard's Massachusetts General and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, so just to start off, uh, we were just thinking of delving into kind of your origin story and I guess just taking us through like pre-med to medical school and residency, how you find found out that you want to do orthopedics. Yeah. I mean, for me, I grew up knowing I wanted to be a doctor. I pretty much knew I wanted to be a surgeon since I was a little kid. I was always obsessed with the idea of what was going on in the human body. Um, when I finally got to undergrad, I went to Davidson College, which is a tiny liberal arts school in North Carolina. I ended up majoring in psychology and minoring in Chinese just because those are the things that interested me the most. And I had planned at that time that I was going to do a post-bac pre-med program. I just wanted to be able to focus and focus, focus solely on pre-med requirements after graduation. And then while I was an undergrad, just enjoy myself and do the things that I, I liked. Um, so I did a post-bac pre-med program at the Harvard Extension School up in Boston, which is a really, really crucial two and a half years or so of just getting all the requirements out of the way, doing a lot of volunteer work, um, doing some research, and was really an enjoyable time. I fell in love with Boston um, when I did that, um, that time there. And then I ended up going to Vanderbilt for medical school which is in Nashville, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, at Vanderbilt, they really focus on medical students finding their passion and they have a lot of elective time. So I knew I wanted to do surgery and I thought I wanted to do neurosurgery, um, but I got to experience it a little bit and I realized that I wanted to go into something that I could restore people's function very reliably with the surgeries that I'd be doing. And um, so I kind of ruled neurosurgery out for me. I explored urology, wasn't a great fit. ENT, liked it. Again, not the best fit. And then orthopedics is something I kept coming back to. Um, as a first-year medical student, I got to shadow a bit and do a bit of research um, in orthopedics. And I liked it, but I wasn't really sure. And everyone told me, oh, yeah, Rivka, you're destined for ortho because you're like a bro. Um, you're just like the broiest person I know. So you're going to fit in orthopedics. And I kind of balked at that. <laughs> I was like, ah, that means I shouldn't go into it. You know, I should probably pick something else. Um, and then a, a couple of years later, I, I came back to it um, because of a mentor I found named Dr. Scheneker. He's an amazing, amazing, amazing pediatric orthopedic surgeon who also has a PhD. So he's an MD PhD and has a lab. And he's just was so supportive and interested I shadowed with him. I ended up spending about six months to a year working in his lab doing basic science research. And it was something I'd never done before. And I got to work on animal models, got to get in the operating room, got to see the connection and how translational research um, can really make a difference, especially in a field like orthopedics where there's not a lot of it going on. And that's what really sold me on it was my relationship with him and how um, encouraging he was. So um, yeah, that's how I got into it. And since it seemed like you had an interest in medicine all the way from the beginning, I'd love to learn more about if you had any role models or people you looked up to in medicine going all the way back. 
Yeah. My aunt is a physician and she, um, my, my dad and my dad's side of the family is from Nigeria. So she um, studied medicine there in Benin city and came here and kind of redid the whole process, like what one has to do and practices internal medicine in Los Angeles. And so growing up, I always idolized her um, and thought that the work she did was so important and critical taking care of people. Um, and then one of my uncles is a veterinarian, so a different type of medicine, but that sort of um, really intense um, intelligence that they had was always so intriguing to me. So those were definitely my role models in terms of medical role models. Um, my parents definitely encouraged me to pursue medicine because it kind of fits into the typical like immigrant acceptable <laughs> fields to go into, but I was def definitely not pushed into it at all. It was, it was all me. Um, so yeah, those were some of the mentors I grew up with. And then over time, um, like I had mentioned, Dr. Schenecker became a mentor for me at Vanderbilt. I really, really, uh, and he's a mentor for me now. And then during residency, I found more mentors as I've gone along. And it really depends on every rotation I'm on. I found, I find someone to connect with that I can take things from um, that inspire me or help me to continue on. So what might be some of those like qualities or values that uh, do inspire you from some of those mentors? I would say when I see mentors or faculty members with patients, some of the things that inspire me the most are people that can really connect with their patients and um, to get on their level. So that's something that I find that that sort of em empathy or even sympathy and ability to make people feel seen and heard. That's something that is, is really lost as time goes on. Um, when people are practicing every day, people get worn down and they forget to connect to their patients. So when I see that, that's something that I really, really value. Um, I also really value resourcefulness um, in, in orthopedics. It's basically construction work, but in the human body. And you have to be able to think on your feet, um, be resourceful, bend things, turn things, think about things creatively in order to come up with a solution for certain problems, especially in, for example, trauma surgery or in other types of orthopedic specialties. So people who are very resourceful and thoughtful rather than just going by the textbook, um, I find that very inspiring. And then people who can balance work and home life. That's uh, a real rare thing. So people who have a very robust clinical practice, do research, and then also are parents or partners and have families. Um, that's something that I find very um, encouraging and inspiring. And so I guess to transition into our next uh, segment, we're kind of wanting to do a little bit of myth busting into what's true and what's false about orthopedics. Uh, and I guess with that first thing you mentioned with, uh, you know, being a surgeon, having a family and maintaining that balance, oftentimes you hear that it's very difficult, but uh, in your experience, what, uh, do you think that being a surgeon, ham having a family is impossible or what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I would say that I'm one of those um, rare female residents who have had kids during residency. I've had two kids in residency. Um, it's not easy, that's for sure. Um, you want to be able to be there for your family, especially when they're so young and um, helpless. Um, but at the same time, you know, you also want to be fully engrossed in your education and, you know, not take any time off. So balancing that is, is hard as a resident. Um, I think that for every person, it's very individualized. For me, I have a really great support system and that's what it comes down to. Um, my husband is amazing. He's there for me. He helps take care of the kids. My mother-in-law is, is amazing. My, my husband's family. I have family here too. They all help out. And so, um, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child and it really does, especially if you want to be 
um, busy and focused on your education and training, or even as an attending, um, it can be challenging. So I think that having a good support network um, has been crucial for me. Um, and my kids have become my support network, you know, coming home to their smiling faces um, is just the icing on the end of the day. It's just, it's just a beautiful thing. So um, for me, it's, it's, it's doable. It's, it's hard for sure, but it's doable. And I think each person has to kind of figure out for themselves what it is that they can handle because it's definitely not easy. So one thing you often hear about uh, orthopedics and other very competitive specialties is that, you know, you need a bunch of publications. Uh, we were just curious what your thoughts about that are and like your, what your experience with research has been. Yeah. So orthopedics is definitely a competitive field. Um, research has always been emphasized when I was a medical student. Um, that's the thing that senior medical students told me, you know, make sure you get at least a couple publications or an abstract or something. Try to get involved because it'll just help your CV overall in the end. Um, do you need 20 publications to get into orthopedics? I don't think so. Um, but I do see that a lot of medical students are taking a year off out of fear that if they don't have 20 publications, then no one's going to want them. Um, but the reality is that it really doesn't matter. Um, the most predictive thing about getting, not necessarily matching, but people are most likely to match at places where they do away rotations. And that's irrespective of how many publications they are, they have. Um, so if you're interested in going into orthopedics, you got to make sure you do some away rotations that you know your home program. Um, so if you are interested in being in California, you know, rotate out there and then maybe in a different program as well too. Um, and then you're most likely going to match out in that location. Um, so don't be so stressed out about, you know, the number of publications. It's also the quality of publications because people can tell when, you, when you're the fifth author on a 20 author list that you didn't do anything for that publication and it's kind of irrelevant. And then when they interview you and you don't know anything about it, um, that it even, it's even more telling. But if you have a couple publications and you know them really well and you were actually involved in it, then that's more meaningful. Um, there's also other things you can do. Um, you can um, do abroad um, experiences. Like I was able to work in Kenya on an ENT mission trip and I was able to list that on my CV. There's all sorts of things that if you look online, if you want to get more exposure and show that you're really interested in orthopedics, that's really all it is publications are a surrogate for, you know, the level of um, dedication that you have to the field. Um, you can do things like that as well, too. So there's more than one way to skin a cat, I would say. Um, I wouldn't avoid it. I mean, for me personally, I really enjoyed working with Dr. Scheneker and I loved doing basic science research and I didn't have much of that um, experience in undergrad. And so I ended up doing a research year at NYU between my second and third years which was an amazing time. I got to really delve into the basic science research that I only got a taste of when I was at Vanderbilt. And I got to do some clinical research projects, randomized control trials, and um, it was a phenomenal experience, but that's really not for everyone. And I would say that's like less normal in orthopedics for people to do basic science research. So um, I, I definitely enjoyed it, but it's not for everyone and that's okay. And uh, one other thing you often hear about orthopedics is that surgeons rarely get much sleep. So we're just wondering, like, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I would say that um, surgeons definitely probably sleep less than your than perhaps some other subspecialties that 
or specialties that should remain unnamed that are a bit lighter. Um, you have to be at work early, you leave work late, and you definitely pushing your work hours. Um, over time, it changes. As an intern and as a second year resident, I was definitely more sleepless than I am now, but it also depends on the rotation. On the trauma rotations, you're going to be busy. So if you're doing a sub-eye, get ready to stay overnight, to be you know, walking around with blurry eyes, um, following along and just helping out your resident, wondering how is it, how do they have so much energy? There's definitely times when I'm, you know, running on fumes uh, and, you know, you, you always get to sleep at some point, <laughs> you know, you always get to take a nap on the weekend or when you get home, et cetera. So um, it's, if you really, really need your sleep, then perhaps this is, residency for orthopedics might be a little, a little rough for you. And I also wanted to go back on another point you made where people said you might be a good fit for ortho because of the like bro characteristic. Right. Um, and at least for me, I know like when I think of ortho, there tends to be some like Goldman Sachs of medicine where it's like former athlete, uh, really tall white male, at least that's what I see the fields dominated by this like character. How true is that in your experience? Yeah, I would say that's definitely the stereotype when I was at, I mean, I love Vanderbilt. It was amazing, but that's um, definitely was the majority of the residents that I saw, um, you know, white males. And it, the reality is that's really the residents across the country. Um, and I wasn't necessarily turned off by that when I, was interested in orthopedics just because in general, I tended to be the only black female in most of the things I did. You know, I was one of few, one of a handful, you know, two or three in med school, two or three doing whatever it was. So it didn't seem to bother me. It was just kind of a normal part of life. Um, but it's definitely true in orthopedics. I think in bigger cities, you end up having larger programs that have more diversity. And then in, in smaller cities and locations, you may end up having um, all males or all Caucasian, um, et cetera. So I think it it's definitely um, not just a stereotype. You know, um, it's it's just the reality. Um, I think that women in residency are about 17%, um, which for a field where you're not, it's not urology or OB-GYN, which, you know, makes sense why be polar opposites for gender. You know, you have a lot of women in patients, um, female patients who need care. So you think that the field should represent the patients are taken care of. And I think that we're heading in, in that direction, but just very, very slow. Um, like I said, it's orthopedics is construction work. And I don't know a lot of uh, females who are interested in that kind of work. So maybe a part of its interest, but then also um, just seeing yourself reflected in the, in the people who work in the field, I think um, would encourage more women to go into it as well. And I have a, a quick follow on after that too. Also going back to another value you saw from the traits that you like admire, does the fact that orthopedics has a set, like not a set, but has like a specific box of traits, does that impede the ability for patients to be seen or heard? Uh, and if it does, what are some solutions that you see? That's a really good question. You know, I've never thought about it in that way. Um, so orthopedics, I would say traits that are regard that stay regardless of what you look like, um, hardworking, smart, dedicated people who are resourceful, who kind of want to get down to the nitty gritty. It's like you see a patient um, and you want to know exactly what the problem is. You want to examine them, look at their imaging and then go on to the next one. And I think that's um, 
that something that typifies a typical orthopod. Um, and they say statistically, yeah, statistics show that physicians interrupt patients within about 30 seconds of meeting them. So you see a patient, you talk to them, and you, you might try a little bit just to ask them a question, and then you immediately interrupt them and start telling them like what their problem is. Um, so I think that for me, it's been helpful sometimes to sit down when I go into a room. So if I go into a patient's room, if I'm standing, um, or, or research shows that if you stand when you go into a patient's room, you're going to spend less time in the room than if you take a seat. And patients are going to feel like you're on their level if you sit down, if they're sitting. Um, and they're going to feel seen because you're at eye level with them. And they're going to feel maybe more comfortable, willing to tell you what's going on. And so I try when I go into a room to take a seat, look at the patient, you know, in their eyes, not on the computer. And um, at least for the beginning of the conversation so that they feel like I'm really there for them. And um, I think even if you don't end up touching the patient um, by examining them, touching them, touching their hand, touching their shoulder, that sort of thing, it makes people feel a connection. So those are some um, just general tips that work in any field um, um, when you're taking care of patients. And regarding your specific experience uh, as a black woman, I was wondering if you had any a particular advice for minorities and women, you know, that are trying to go into ortho that are interested in the field. Um, yeah, definitely. There's so many right now. I think that it's a time where in social media on the internet, you see lots of discussions about women and minorities in orthopedics and um, what you should look for advice on diversity. Um, But the reality is that um, this is not just a a hot button issue for today. This has been kind of going on for a a long time. The, The concept that diversity is important in orthopedics, people looking to go to programs that may or may not look like they're diverse. And I think that a lot of residents I've spoken to or medical students I've spoken to have been turned off by even considering programs where there's no women or there hasn't been a minority in X number of years. Um, The reality is that there aren't many of us. There aren't many people of color. There's not many women of color and there's not many women. So we tend to gravitate, like I was saying, towards big cities, programs where there's people, but some of these other smaller programs or just programs that have a, you know, their, their page doesn't look that diverse. That doesn't mean that they don't want you. That doesn't mean that they're not interested in you. So you have to give some places a chance, still apply, interview, and take a look. Um, yeah, don't be turned off by program just because they haven't um, see, ha- had a lot of um, diversity recruitment before. They could be interested. And then also finding mentors. I, when I was an intern, I'm sorry, when I was a medical student, I didn't see, and I hadn't met any black orthopedic surgeons. And I'd seen a few females because Vanderbilt had some, but I hadn't seen any black ones. Um, and like, like I mentioned, Dr. Sh- I met Dr. Scheniger. He's a white guy. He was an ardent supporter of me, really, really big supporter. And I didn't look for someone. I didn't find that have, that he was white made a disconnect between us at all. I would say find mentors who want to support you, not just people who look like you. You know, find someone at your home program who can support you. Um, and they don't have to look anything like you at all. And they may not even be in the same specialty. You know, finding a mentor who is actually going to invest in you and support you is more important than anything else. I was wondering if you'd be comfortable to share like an experience where maybe the program, it didn't seem to be as diverse, like like some of the other med programs that you were talking about, but 
you like took the opportunity, you took the um, like first step to, you know, see what it's about? Yeah. I mean, when I applied to programs um, for residency, I applied very broadly um, because I wasn't really sure um, where I was going to end up. And I, I did, I will admittedly say I sought out programs because I was married. I was married at the time. I sought out programs that had business schools that were close by because my husband was wanted to go to business school. So that kind of like limited us. I ended up doing my sub eyes at Harvard, which has a very big diverse program at NYU, which has a very big diverse program. Um, but I did apply uh, quite broadly. And I think um, for me, some of the programs, I, even, even being at Vanderbilt, you know, or even being in New York as a resident, not just because a program has diversity doesn't mean that everyone is going to treat you very nicely all the time. It, then that comes down to even patients. You know, I've had a patient um, when I was working at a, a hospital in New York, um, I had a patient say to me, well, they didn't say it to me. It was a, a Chinese patient who had a really bad humerus, a proximal humerus fracture as a fracture dislocation, something that needed to have surgery. So she was admitted and I was rounding on her and she wanted to speak with an interpreter, even though I was able to speak with her in, in, in Chinese. Um, she told me she didn't understand me and then got an interpreter on the phone and told the interpreter she didn't understand the interpreter and wanted to speak to a different interpreter, et cetera. All comes down to say that she ended up telling um, the interpreter she didn't want to have a black physician. She didn't want to have a black surgeon. Um, and I could understand what she was saying because, you know, I could, I could understand some Chinese again. It was my minor. So I said, okay. Well, unfortunately, today, the, the person on call over the weekend is also a Black female, Dr. McLaurin. So um, if you don't want to have me treat, take care of you, even my boss, you know, you don't want to have her take care of you, then, um, you know, it's your right to refuse surgery. Um, unfortunately, it's because of the color of my skin. Um, so people will treat you anyhow, even in big, diverse cities. You just have to have a strong backbone and, um you know, not take anything too personally when dealing with um, certain pe certain people. Yeah, I was just wondering, like in those situations, like I feel like that can definitely, you know, take a toll or be hurtful. Like, I guess, what are some ways uh, that you would recommend, like, I guess, building that kind of backbone? Yeah. So I guess there's two ways to go about it. It's either that you come in strong and very resilient because you, that, that's just like something that's in, that's part of your ethos is just this concept that you can persist and get through anything. And I think growing up, I come from a really big family, eight siblings, six of them are younger than me. I was always the kind of one of the big leaders of my siblings, helping to manage everybody, helping to get people together, get people um, organized. And that's how I've been generally like a, like a, like a mother, um, very mother bear <laughs> personality. And that's part of my resiliency is that I am always focusing on other people, focusing on the next step. I don't let things get to me too much because I'm too focused on, or I, I try to stay focused on helping other people as much as I can. So I try not to get bogged down um, in my own um, issues. So I think that's one of my big coping mechanisms is to kind of just deflect, redirect, and to move on. Um, for, for me in residency, those experiences it's really helpful to talk to people. Um, when you carry things in you and don't mention them, then they can fester. So for me, you know, speaking to my friends, speaking to mentors about issues um, is really helpful. Even if if just to vent, not that you, I, I can't change the world, 
but I can at least make um, a connection to other people and find support in that kind of support network. So I'd say general advice for people is if you don't have much resiliency coming into it, you're going to have to definitely have resiliency when you're going through residency, no matter what specialty you go into. And so you have to find a support network for you. And if you can't find a support network and you're still working on your coping skills, then you maybe can even get some mental health uh, assistance to work on developing coping skills um, so that you can get through it um, happily. So it definitely takes time to build um, resilience. Uh, I definitely say that. And so how is your tolerance for resilience and maybe other traits changed now looking back uh, on your five years in residency? I would say that over time, I've definitely become more self-assured. And that's something that it's probably ubiquitous for everybody. Um, In the beginning, I would be more hesitant to say something if I uh, felt that I was being taken advantage of, or if a patient was being rude to me, I wouldn't necessarily speak up for myself. Um, but then I learned that sometimes people don't really know when they're saying something that's inappropriate or saying something that's hurtful. And you, the victim, or you, the person who's experiencing it will leave the situation and you'll just kind of rack it over in your brain for days and days when you could have addressed it at the time. So I've developed an approach, which is to kind of deal with things as they come. If a patient as being rude or disrespectful or saying something inappropriate, then, you know, I'll address it in the moment. Okay, sir or ma'am, you know what you're saying, I'm trying to provide you care and this is not really helpful to to the relationship. Let's focus on X, the problem that you're here. Um, When it comes to dealing with ancillary, it's not just patients, you know, ancillary staff members, nurses, scrub techs, et cetera, same thing. And and when it comes to dealing with uh, faculty members, uh, if someone says something that's inappropriate, it's like, okay, that's not actually very funny. You know, that, you know, developing a way to speak to people, address issues as they go, um, really helps so that the thing's hanging behind and you don't have any regrets about things left unsaid. So that's something that I've, I've begun to adopt, which has made it easier to move on and move forward with people. And kind of uh, adding on to that, like, we're just wondering how do you think your residency program has changed? in those five years, in those ways of like responding to discrimination, if uh, residents are going through something, like how do you think uh, the program is changing, like responding to situations like that? Yeah, um, so my so NYU has always been a pretty diverse program. Um, I uh, would say there's always been females when I was a sub-I, there was a ton of women I saw uh, amongst the ranks of the residents and um, there were African-Americans as well too. Um, but I think that diversity was not necessarily spoken about. And that's not just at NYU. I think that's probably just probably everywhere that it was like less of a, a topic that people had to really confront and grapple with. Um, but over the past five years, it's definitely become more of a topic. Right now, there is a diversity committee and we have a newsletter that we send out every month. And that newsletter has um, perspectives from people on how to deal with whatever issue it may be. Um, for example, I wrote a piece last month, which was focusing on how to be your own self-advocate. And before that, it was on bystander intervention and people talking about um, experiences uh, all, all over the gamut. And so I would say that NYU has definitely made an intentional push to provide resources and training for everybody, not just people of color or um, females, um, so that they feel like they can help others and that they can help themselves. So what would you want to tell your younger self now? Is there anything that you'd do different? 
I would say telling my younger self, um, it's a marathon. You know, this is not something that's going to be uh, over over quickly. The pursuit of medicine, the pursuit of becoming a surgeon, the pursuit of taking care of other people, it's a high, uh, it's, it's a calling. Um, some people may not agree with that. It can be a controversial topic. Some people think of it as a job. Um, but to, to persist and do this for over 10 years, going through education, and like, I'm still not done with my training. And you have to just have dedication and you're just paving a way for yourself for the future. It can't be about money. It can't be about just getting to the end. It has to be about the process and enjoying the process, enjoying learning. And I think that I would just tell myself to just get ready to learn. Um, it's a lifelong process of learning um, that never ends. And then also I would tell myself to spend my time wisely especially before you have kids and <laughs> tell it to everybody. Cause um, once you have kids, you lose a lot of your free time and spend your time wisely. You know, if you have a time to either chill and play video games and maybe you need to chill and play video games or go for a run, do that. Um, if you need to binge watch TV, maybe do that sometimes, but then really try to spend your time focusing on what's going to actually like make you better as a person. Maybe that is studying that day. Maybe that's exercising. Maybe it's et cetera, but don't just let time pass you by without intentionally using it um, um, with focus um, for sure. Um, wellness is a, something that's become increasingly important. Um, people are recognizing that no matter what field you're in, but especially in orthopedics, people suffer from imposter syndrome across the board. Um, people suffer from a challenge figuring out their work-life balance. And then that all results in burnout um, in the end. And in fact, about studies show that about 40 to 60% of orthopedic surgeons report burnout. And it's even worse in residency. Um, in residents, as attendings, people report feelings of um, emotional exhaustion and kind of depersonalization. But in residency, not only do they have emotional exhaustion and depersonalization, with dealing with patients, they also have a low self-esteem or low self-efficacy, feeling like their own personal efforts aren't really valued. So they just, people don't value their own selves um, as residents. So um, focusing on things that make you well and make you feel better will help to prevent you from getting burnt out in the end. And uh, in your experience, how have you seen the way that institutions like approach wellness? I think you mentioned uh, there was a specific newsletter that uh, those being sent out every week that you guys had, but what do you see that's being done right? What's being done wrong? And what are some things you think that can be changed for the better? Oh, absolutely. Wellness is one of those topics where um, it's when an institution tries to provide wellness, it's almost, uh, it can be, it can be tricky. It's like everyone come together at this time to do the same activity that not everyone wants to do. Um, so it can be hard for an institution to provide and make people well. Um, but providing resources, um, for example, they have a resource here at NYU, and I think they probably have this other programs as well, too, um, for mental health, where you can get free um, counseling if you want it at any time of the day. There's also apps you can download on your phone that are meditation apps and that are kind of personalized so that you can work on whatever you need in your own free time. Um, they, as a second year resident, they have a session on wellness that they have someone come in and talk about, they do like a, a profile for each person and talk about what you as an individual can do in your own life to, um, get happier and, you know, avoid burnout. Um, and then I would say 
overall, they actually just formed a, a committee uh, on wellness for attendings. So that's a focus. I mean, you know, in training, oftentimes people are, are trying to make residents' lives and medical students' lives better. But then as attendings, people are just, you know, probably assume that you've, you've made it to the top and you can figure it out on your own. But there's definitely an institutional effort overall to make the everybody that works there um, focus on not getting burnt out because it does affect people no matter how old you are. Um, you don't just age out of being uh, burnt out. It, it's something that continues on. So um, there's a lot of a lot of efforts. I would say that meditation is something that is well recognized to help with help people to avoid burnout and to make them more well. Um, there is a resource for meditation that I think is pretty helpful. Um, through UCLA, you can just probably Google UCLA meditation and it'll come up. They give a lot of guided meditations that are really, really nice. Um, for me personally, I've always been interested in yoga and I find that it's almost, it's, they call yoga moving meditation because you have to think about your body actions and every muscle you're moving and your breath. And so you kind of become really, really as through the process of, of yoga, you start meditating it without really thinking about it. And, um, it's something I was interested in so much so that I actually um, became a certified yoga instructor um, during residency. Um, so it's something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about as well. And I think that, you know, if you're interested in some in yoga or moving meditation, cause you just can't sit still, then try it. Um, there's lots of different ways to, to feel better. And they usually involve stilling your mind or your body. Yeah. I guess as we're wrapping up, uh, I was just wondering if there was any kind of parting wisdom, last piece of advice for um, anyone who's just trying to become a doctor or specifically in orthopedics, like what do you think would be helpful for them to hear? Yeah, I think that for pursuing orthopedics, um, you know, ignore the stereotypes. You have to see where you, what fits right for you. You know, if you're at a program that is not just like you, that's okay. You know, go away to a sub-eye, do some rotations, take, take a look. Um, don't think about what people say about orthopedics, that it's all bros and jocks. Um, you have to see what really fits your personality and your style. Um, I think people are really scared these days because of the step one getting, you know, turning to pass fail. And it's like, how do I match? Especially if I don't go to a medical school that's, you know, outstanding top 10 medical school. Um, don't be afraid. Orthopedics is competitive. It always has been. Um, just focus on step two, you know, having some publications is important. That doesn't mean you have to take a whole year off to do it. Um, but find a mentor who can really critically evaluate um, where you're going and is going to prom promote you to the future. And I think that that's uh, very helpful. And if you're interested in medicine and you're not in medical school yet, same thing. You know, you have to find a mentor, find, some, find someone that you either want to be like, you like something about their practice um, and see if you can shadow them. Um, see what it's like before you commit to the long journey that it really is. Cause there's a lot of other fields than medicine. Um, then becoming an MD, you can become a PA. Um, there's nursing, nurse practitioners. There's lots of different ways that you can get involved in healthcare without having to be an MD. So um, it doesn't have to be the only way to take care of people and to help people. Well, thank you so much, Rivka. And this has been the MSX podcast.